Okay, welcome back to the Age of L podcast. This is episode number seven. I'm here with Professor Giorgio. Hello, Giorgio. Hello, Lars. How Thank you it? for having me. <laughs> We're very well, you're very welcome. Um, so, Giorgio, tell me, um, how's life? Life is, is, is fine, yeah. Coming to the end of the term. Um, it's been very busy. Uh, it's been a little bit intense. Lots of students to manage, but... Um, at the same time, it's been quite challenging in a nice way. Um, I feel that students this term have been um, interested in challenging the material itself, as well as sometimes, you know, um, points of view being made in the classroom. Um, yeah, overall, no complaint. Okay. And how do you find that the um, students are, are handling themselves now at the end of the term? Because you're saying that you're struggling. Yeah. But how, yeah, yeah. How do you find that your students adapt? I think that they, by week 11 on average, you find that um, productivity starts declining and participation rates start decreasing. Um, because it's naturally for people to start feeling the heat of the term. Um, but. Um, it's, it's interesting because towards the towards week 14 it sort of picks up again and I think it's because they know that the exams week is is coming <laughs> and uh, the pressure is on so they want to clarify any last uh, bits and pieces or ask questions or um, discuss the exam structure the type of questions that will come up and sort of reassure themselves that they will be okay yeah. I think that's been a recurring theme. People asking what questions are going to look. How are the questions going to look? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if it was up to them, I would not only give them the questions, but also the answers. Yeah, and you did, didn't you? No, but no, I gave a sample answer, but not okay. the actual exam question. Okay, and how? how um, so, so for uh, let's continue down this path. So, how is this term? Has have you done anything differently this term to keep the students even more engaged? Because that's something you mentioned. It's interesting you say that because I often. I mean, there is two aspects you can look at this from. Uh, one is a more technical aspect, which is. Um, um, the actual information you incorporate into the, mm, the slides itself, um, which you, you should really be updating as much as you can with a uh, new type of information that have come up. Um, you know, from articles, the World Economic Forum, for example, is a very interesting one to use. Um, the Organization for Economic Development, um, various websites that I look at, I tend to look at which I did, but there wasn't anything uh, new uh, and interesting that I could have added compared to last term. But I think that is the one side, so the technical, but then from the um, delivery side of things, I think that comes down to the students themselves and how much they show interest in the classroom and they challenge um, things that are being said and generate discussion. Um, um, further develop my own creativity during um, the, the delivery of the material and I think this term has been they have been quite good in terms of that and is that something you feel is, do you feel that it's a mutual sort of uh, not battle but a mutual exchange so that the more they engage with you the more you engage with oh, them oh 100% and that's what you will find in the future with 
presentations that you give on a formal and informal context that the audience should really be driving the conversation to a greater depth of thinking um, because you have your own, you know, um, structure you want to go down, but then the way you divert from it and the things that you discuss are up to the people that you're dealing with. If they don't really show any interest whatsoever, then your own creativity, you know, starts going down and even sometimes flatlines, yeah. which is not great. And what do you fall back on if that happens? Or have you experienced that yet? Or? Of course I have, yeah, of course I have. Um, what I fall back on to is Either I will have some specific ways to try and, and, and bounce back, whether it sure. is, uh, if I, let's say, I assess the students on a specific day are tired, or whether we have over, um, if we have done far too many slides or whatever, then I will try to stop and then maybe do something practical to wake them up. If the reason why they are a little bit quiet is for Dick. Yeah. But sometimes it's also the, day, uh, the time of the day that you deliver a lecture. Normally after lunchtime, it's very, they're very sleepy. <laughs> and so that is a little bit tough to manage. But what you fall back onto is your own methods, if you have any, or the actual material that you have to cover on the slides. Yeah, the actual fundamentals. Yeah, exactly. So you, you, you fall back to basics, basically. But it shouldn't really be about basics. It should be about more depth, critical thinking, analyzing, debating, criticizing, and all of that. Because it really does fire up your brain in a different way. And I'm sure um, a lot of people can also agree to that. That, I mean, being told something basic is, okay, it might be interesting or mm. informative rather yeah. okay, it's informative yeah, yeah. if you're interested in something then it's yeah. engaging but yeah, it's yeah. informative uh, but then on the other hand if you're actually discussing something and I, I'm sure that uh, the m most normal circumstance that people can relate to is you know discussing politics or all oh, these yeah. crazy things yeah. then you're engaged and you're developing your arguments mm. while you're doing yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of challenging yeah but if you're going to look at traditionally how entrepreneurial ideas have come about or the idea of innovation was by getting drunk in a pub, <laughs> at least in the UK. Yeah. So again, it's through discussion that idea generation takes place. Mm. If it is one person talking, mm. then obviously it's not going to be as innovative as it should. Um, of course, I'm not suggesting we bring alcohol into this, <laughs> but it's just about that level of conversation. Yeah. Um, now, going back to, you made a point that um, people need to be interested in a topic or finding what they're interested in. Yeah. So that's another way you can deal with it by relating it to something that they can relate to. Putting it into relevant context. Exactly, exactly. Having said that, then we can also take it back to even more basics as in, why are you here? Why are you studying? Why are you doing a degree in business? Do you think everyone knows? No. Especially not at the age of the age of eighteen, or even nineteen, or even twenty. Sometimes, I mean, I'm I'm um, guilty of that. I I did a degree in accounting and economics, and I didn't have a clue why I was doing it. It was more like, hmm, what could be a safe job to go into in the future that would pay good money? Okay, numbers. Mm. 
But um, as time went by and the more I understood who I am, the more I realized that it wasn't for me. It was definitely the wrong choice. So no, I don't expect them to know. But at the same time, what I expect them to do is try to take as much as they can from this experience because we all have good, bad or sort of in the middle type of experiences in life and it's about what you do with that. If you're just going to let it go completely and say, I don't really care, I, you know, I don't see any point in being here, then you're wasting your time, my time and your parents' money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, period, yeah. You know, that's, so. that's true and uh, yeah. I think it's, it's very important for people to find um, a reason why they're doing things or at least try to justify it yeah. so they can relate it to their interests. Yeah. However, I think, uh, and you might agree, that I think we overthink our whys. Mm. I think we want our whys to be some sort of profound thing yeah. that comes down from heaven and then everything you do for the rest of your life is just a straight line. You're just yeah. holding your why in yeah, yeah. the hand and you're just walking along. Uh, which tends not to be the case. No, nope. uh, very rare. And so I, how do people? How can people justify it? Yeah, and I think a lot of the times when people find that that line starts diverting to a different direction, they start panicking because again, it's what we discussed in class, and I keep mentioning it: is the idea of the uncertainty, the the the, the change, the unknown that makes people feel unsafe. But sometimes it can also be exciting and interesting because. At that moment, you should really figure out that maybe there is a diversion because there should be a diversion. Maybe you need to be on a different path. I was supposed to do the chartered accountant professional qualification, and then I ended up doing a PhD in change management. <laughs> completely different to. And you how know. did that happen? How did you end up there? Um, I think it's, it was mainly my dad who challenged me in the summer of 99, as the song says, <laughs> and um, I was 69 or whatever, that uh, he said to me, are you sure you want to do this because you don't seem that interested? And I said, truth be told, no, I, I don't want to become an accountant. So he threw the idea that perhaps a PhD would be a good um, alternative, and I that moment thought, oh yeah, I'll go back to university, very happy to. And then I went from there and I spoke to various uh, companies, mainly banks to be honest, and they said to me a, a good topic for a PhD would be something related to numbers or people. At that moment I did realize that I'm more of a people's person and I pursued that. But even with that in mind, when I spoke to my those days supervisor, he said to me, I don't believe you're ready to formally register yet. So go away, collect as many ideas as you can, and we need to narrow it down. And also, I need, as your supervisor, to find common grounds to work with you. So I spent roughly five months researching. I spent a lot of time in front of the computer. Uh, my eyes were hurt at the end of it. Um, and then we did find common ground, and we went from there. And I think the, the starting point was the fact that at that point in time that we're looking at 2000, mm -hmm. so 18 years ago, <laughs> was that um, mergers and acquisitions, 60% of them failed because of lack of understanding of employees. Mm -hmm. um, and it just sort of went from there. Now the interesting part is, which is a paradox as well, that more research is going into change management, but in some miraculous way, the percentage of mergers and acquisitions that fail has increased to 80%. Really? 
Really? So then there's a disconnect here. And maybe the disconnect comes from the fact, and that's just my theory, that businesses don't really, they're not even aware of the papers being published of people who have carried out research in a field that would actually help them yeah. understand themselves better and also what they're dealing with. And that's a common issue in the area of management of business, um, linking theory to practice. And this is about, this is about so um, you have to excuse me for my ignorance, but change yeah. management in a nutshell. Mm. It's about managing uh, people, organizational change over yeah. time. Okay. Yeah. So you have technical and um, human side to change management. The technical, you know, is a little bit, I'm not suggesting is less important, but it's probably more manageable. Mm. So to get the sums right, it can happen. The inanimate things. Exactly. But then when you're looking at people, then it's much more, um, uh, it's much more challenging because you have people with different needs, different wants, different motivations, different fears, different life experiences. Um, and so linking all that and aligning it with your future goals that you want to achieve is very difficult with or without a change. So how, how does one start if um, if you're adapting for for example a merger or yeah. acquisition? How do you start? If I'm the manager, how do I start preparing my organization for the imminent change of the acquisition in order to avoid a failure? Yeah, I think that for me personally, it starts from from point zero. Meaning, even if you haven't really been through a change, a massive one, uh, a very disruptive one, you always look for those type of skills and experiences in the people that you hire. Mm -hmm. I am a firm believer that whoever you hire, you have to really think carefully. And I'm even talking about when you put together a job description. So what sort of skills are you looking for from that position, especially on a managerial level? Mm -hmm. Because your managers are, in principle, going to be coaches. They're going to be leaders of everyone else. So then, so then, are you actually trying to identify those skills in those managers, so that then they're able to be prepared and lead everyone else down a change path? Maybe also nurture those skills. In so that would be the next step. Yeah. Okay. That's the next so first, you look for them. Mm -hmm. If you found potential potential talent in someone, but they haven't really got. Those ex that expertise on how to manage change, you have to then have a very strong training and development department or function within your business to train them, to develop those skills in people so that they're best prepared. But I, I think that's also a very big problem in business nowadays, yeah. especially from where I come from and generally I think uh, all over the world is that how do you identify those candidates? Uh, how do I, how do I identify how do you identify them for real? Because when you're in an interview, everybody can say yeah. what you want to hear yeah. and look for it. So how is there any way where you can sort of break down to the bedrock and, and, and explore what types of people, or do, are you looking for more of a um, a type of person who you can mold later? Let me let me reverse the question, and it's going to be a completely different example. Sure. How do you identify who you want to enter a relationship with, a romantic relationship with? 
<laughs> you go on multiple dates. Yes. You try to ask the right questions. Mm -hmm. You try to. I think it all starts with you mm -hmm. and knowing who you are, and then decide what you're looking for. Yes. And then when you know what you're looking for, you should be trying to see that in the person that you are having those dates with. And so then maybe it's about that person meeting the team, mm. going for lunch with the team. Maybe it's about using uh, different other types of methods of assessing their, their skills or expertise. Maybe it's about using simulation exercises. So as many, as you as many methods as you can during the, um, uh, the selection process yeah. would minimize the risk of possible um, wrong fit as much as you can. Mm -hmm. Of course, the risk is never zero. No. So that, that's the only thing you can do. Okay. Evaluate them in as many ways as possible, but during those evaluations, you actually look for specific types of skills, knowledge, expertise, experiences. Uh, and it's, uh, you brought up a very interesting point uh, as well, uh, that the businesses need to know who they are. And from your experience, yeah. I know what my answer is to yeah. question, this question, but from your experience, do you see businesses even looking into this at all? Or if they do, how do they go about it? Because I think you'd never really yeah. hear anything profound yeah. uh, of who the business are, because they'll always say, yeah, we're a bunch of uh, happy-go-lucky guys and we go out for drinks on yeah. Fridays. And, but that's not really, yeah, I, that's more of a cultural thing. I think there's definitely, um, an issue there whereby businesses, from a top level at least, they will look at where they want to be in terms of um, position in the market. Mm. But I think to me, again, that is a little bit technical. Yeah. It's also about understanding your own culture and whether your culture works. Um, and that you will see, but obviously how happy people are by how often people quit and they leave your company. What do they say when they quit? Do they feel comfortable to give you a true view of why they're leaving? What they think of the job they have left? What they think about their manager? Because feedback is important. And, and if you don't get the right type of feedback, then you're not going to know. And hence why relationships are very important, whether it is with your employees, your suppliers, your customers, uh, whatever stakeholders that you have and who play an important part in your survival. But then you take the feedback, but then you do need to do something about it. Because even if the feedback is negative, it's about taking it away, thinking about it and making changes. And I think a lot of companies or even everyday people are shying away from hearing the truth about how they perform because they then worry about taking responsibility of making alterations. And not everyone is, has that level of strength to making alterations. So it's actually, so, so number one, it's about, you can actually figure out who you are and yeah. who you have just simply by having a culture of communication exactly yeah. and by listening exactly <laughs> not only he not only collecting the information but it's about actioning that but I think that's a general issue with the society as a whole um, you know in many parts of the world you know as long as I don't see something 
then that means I want to acknowledge it, because if I acknowledge it, then that means I need to do something about it. So it's better if I live in denial and pretend that I'm not, I'm not seeing it, because that way I won't have to change my regulations, I won't have to change legislation, I won't have to change the way I do things. Because it is a big thing, saying for example, um, you know, um, that we have people with difference, look at uh, diversity in whatever way, yeah. whether it is in skills, expertise or characteristics of a person. But yes, it is fine saying there are differences, there is diversity, but then you have to accommodate diversity in the physical environment of your building, in the, in the methods that you use to hire people, in the methods that you use to, um, uh, to re reward people, to motivate people. And that takes thinking. Yeah. It's work. It's a creative process. Exactly. How can, I, exactly. how can I trigger, in the sense of the word, how can I yeah. trigger all the different types of people I yeah. have without diverting too much from where I need to go and without accommodating them too much and making them too comfortable. Exactly. Because then you might have another problem, which exactly. is a whole different scenario. If and, you're and that's what we're exploring in change management as a course. Mm -hmm. The fact that, and remember, we spoke about it in class as well, in the business environment, that it's all down to neuroscience, the fear or how you're going to move the brain from being emotional to being logical. And so that process takes time and effort and, and sometimes it's painful and sometimes you might not even be able to make it. So then it's about embracing the idea of failure as well and not being scared of failure. It's more about what you do with it. Where are the weaknesses and rectifying them. But we're lazy. We are. Our brains are lazy. They are hardwired to jump over the exactly. lowest part of the fence. Yeah. We're cognitive slows. We said it in class. We don't want to make that level of effort because the familiar feels comfortable, easy, I don't have to think. And it is hard when, you're, when your brain is hardwired on survival yeah. and we have survival. That's the least of our worries yeah. is survival most exactly, of the time, yeah. most of the time. Yeah. And now we're here, we want to self-actualize. And yeah. if you're thinking about Maslow's your yeah, needs, yeah. um, there's a reason why, there's, why we always talk about the 1%. Because mm. those might actually be the people who are, and it can be at any domain, you can imagine, and, and maybe those people are the ones that are able to overcome their laziness or yeah. inert laziness yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. and then make things happen. So yeah. how do we get a business to do the same thing? How can we make uh, our businesses into the 1% of the businesses? Well, imagine <laughs> then, imagine then why 80% of, for example, acquisitions fail. Because you are trying to get a group of people that could be even a thousand, two thousand, twenty thousand to move from point A to point B in a successful manner. Is and that's why it's frightening. If you have that level of emotional, social, intelligent, maturity, whatever you want to call it, to understand the severity of the situation then it becomes incredibly frightening. It does, I mean, I guess everybody can relate, just being in groups of five and having people show up to a meeting. Yep. And now imagine having 20,000 people who needs to relocate yep. and be accommodated not to- And be happy with it. And be happy with it. And, and, and contribute and get on with it basically. Mm. And believe in why you've made this change. It's incredibly difficult and that's why perhaps, to a certain degree, you should really 
make peace with the fact that there might be casualties on the way that you will end up losing some people because you just can't please everyone and I've learned that through teaching yeah and <laughs> you can't make everyone happy <laughs> someone's gonna get lost exactly or be unhappy with your methods or who you are because they don't relate to you mm. you know if you have 78 uh, people in the classroom is it really realistic to think that 78 people will like your personality, will understand what you're telling them, will believe in you? Probably not. You strive for 78, of course, and sure. you never give up, but, you know. There's a, there's a quote that unless you have some enemies, I mean, you don't, you don't have enemies, uh, en en uh, enemies, enemies. Uh, among your students, but just metaphorically, yeah, yeah, if enemies. you don't have any enemies, you've done nothing remarkable. Yeah, and that's why competition in business shouldn't be looked at as always something negative because it's what makes you, it's what drives you forward. Mm. And, and I was thinking about this as well when you were explaining that mm. uh, knowing who you are as an organization, know knowing who, yeah, exactly, knowing self, <laughs> um, and then knowing who you want to uh, complement your team with, mm. uh, so who you want to engage in a relationship with, and then having the counterpart which and just to go back to the acquisition or the merger and then sort of having your part of the jigsaw interconnect with the yep. other part of the jigsaw without there being any sort of place points where you have to squeeze it in i think that's the million dollar question if you it is look that but then we come down to the idea of compromise mm -hmm. and every human relationship good well i'm talking about healthy relationships sure. should you have to make peace with the fact that you will have to compromise. It cannot obviously only work your way and there will be things that you will do that you will not particularly like, mm. but you just need to get on with it. Mm. And I think that today a lot of people have become quite selfish mm. and, um, and they just don't want to compromise and with the first issue, they run away because again, it's easier to jump the ship than saying, right, how can I change myself to make this work? Human relationships are work yeah. on a daily basis. It has to be pleasant work, of course. You have to have something that drives you need to stay in it. Otherwise, of course, I'm not suggesting that if it's an unpleasant situation, you stay in it. I mean, I've, I've worked in several businesses I mean, some of them I stayed for a very, very brief amount of time because I was genuinely unhappy. It was having an impact. So there's a difference between, for me at least, compromise and sacrifice. And sacrifice means, in my interpretation, is in um, almost um, killing who you are. And it shouldn't be about that. Adjustment, yes, but eliminating who you are is another story. And you know, when, when you start feeling that level of oops, sorry, negative impact, then maybe it's, it's time to go. And, and this thing about constraining yourself, I think that's a very dangerous thing to do because we're talking, you're, you're basically you're strangling who you are in order to fit into where you probably shouldn't be. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And then I think the result of that, if you, so pressure over time, then you'll end up with something erratic or sporadic or something impulsive, which will mm. be much, much worse than detaching yourself yeah, yeah. Uh, or even confronting yeah. it at the time of which it uh, originates. I, I suppose though that we also need to be in touch with reality and sometimes people 
make decisions or stay in situations that don't necessarily make them happy, but because they have to. If, you know, there are people who, for example, might have children to provide for and stuff, and they need the income. So, again, yes, it's important for you to be happy as well, but it depends on the realities of your life. And sometimes, you know, you do have to make sacrifices. It's nice if you are in a, in a business environment that it allows you the idea of options, but sometimes you just don't have options. And that's just obviously sad, but it is a reality for many people. And, and sometimes we might also need just to make peace with the fact that yeah. not everything in your life is supposed to be fun. No, because exactly. everything yeah. is fun, yeah. nothing is fun. Yeah. Um, no, so true. sometimes we need to make peace with the fact that it's going to be hard. Yeah. It might yeah. hurt for a long time. Yeah. But as long as it's not crushing my soul to the point at which I have nothing left to give, yeah. maybe I should stick with it and see what I can learn. Mm. So yeah. changing your perspective and seeing what can I take from this experience mm. and bring to the next endeavor I'm going yeah. to. It's cost versus benefit analysis. I mean, if, if the benefit you get from a situation outweighs the cost, then that's your answer. But, you know, everyone's different and that's what makes managing people difficult as well. You don't know what drives them, you don't really know the realities of their personal life. And I know that we shouldn't really be mixing personal and professional, but in realistic terms, of course you do. And, you know, and that's where a successful manager leader comes in, is one that understands what his or her people go through as well. Because sometimes you have to be a counselor. I think um, I think that's a very important point, and for people who go into management yeah. or have their first leadership role, yeah. and from my observations, being in a, having been in various environments, seeing that they start out, and they almost all do this, except mm. for the very very skilled ones. They always start out by being too friendly, and then they end up with a mess mm -hmm. because obviously they have no there's no constraints there's no boundaries yeah, yeah, so yeah, people yeah. start taking more and more and more and more yeah, yeah, yeah. and you end up with having to either change the leader or reposition the team yeah. or change the team yeah and then you have the opposite side of the scale where you're too brute yeah, too yeah. harsh and then you end up with the same result so finding that middle ground and i think um i think you can only get there by experience i agree on that and i think from a personal experience i found that um Sometimes in the past, I did perhaps, you know, open up too quickly and then it sort of backfired with some people, not all. And I think then it's about identifying who you need to adjust your management style with. And, and because the one that you predominantly use doesn't work. And, and I do, I'm a firm believer of boundaries and limits. Because without those, human relationships don't work. Um, but then it's down to respect. Do you respect and trust me or not? Because if you respect, respect and trust me, then you know the relationship is much more successful. Um, and that's where managers also suffer from. And that is the fact that they're, they might have gotten a job based on their credentials. But let's not forget that when you're looking for a leader, there's no job description for a leader. There's no, you cannot draw it up and say, I am looking for a leader who possesses X, Y, Z. But a manager, yes, there is a job description. And once you create a job description for it, then you hire for it. But then if someone has the qualifications 
and the experience, you might hire them, but then do they have the interpersonal skills? And then are you looking for those? So we go back to what we said earlier. And that's why I've seen in business many times managers who um, weren't change leaders. They never went through a change themselves. They didn't really understand how it should work. They didn't understand how to motivate people, communicate and all of that. And then it was a mess. And when I say managers, I mean from a top level as well, not just middle managers. All the way up to the CEOs. Yeah, yeah, because there are CEOs who've never been through a change. But just because you're a CEO doesn't mean much. And who do you go to if you don't have the experience and well, you're heading for the storm? Well, that's the problem, you see, and that's in what you, we said before that it's about knowing yourself. Mm-hmm. And if you have enough humility, then you should be able and say, do you know what? I can see where the company needs to be, how we can get there. This is perhaps a plan, but I need personally to get executive coaching, executive training to know what to expect. But instead, a lot of the times what CEOs do is they attend to the services of a consultancy. So they hand over far too much power to external parties that don't really have an emotional commitment to the company. And then things can go wrong, and then they have to bring another consultancy to sort out the mess of the first consultancy. And also, if you have shareholders and it looks nice on paper to say to them, oh, look, I'm, I'm bringing Deloitte in, <laughs> so I'm taking my soul seriously, mm-hmm. and I'm protecting your, your money, your profits, yeah. your interests. Yeah. So, um, you know, again, are you doing what you need to do, or do you think you're doing what you need to do? It's two different things. Mm. And what do you think, uh, if, we're, if we're looking at, at uh, your career, so now you're managing uh, how many students? Oh, God, well, there is no standard number. No, so at the moment is 72 plus 72 plus 52. Okay, so almost 200. Yeah. Very close to 200. Yeah. And that takes, obviously, as we were talking about before, a lot of skill in different areas, mm. relationship building and management. Yeah. And looking back at your career before becoming a professor, what do you think is the greatest takeaways from what you dealt with there that uh, is preparing you for what you're doing right now? I think for me, the way I look at my time in, in working in the industry was the stage that molded me into who I am now because I've made a lot of mistakes even wrong types of behavior, even, I think at times I was even unprofessional when I think back. Um, I wasn't consciously doing it. I think it was my lack of maturity, my professional maturity. And I think what I took away from it is that level of experience that got me to understand that certain types of behaviors are just not right, and you don't behave like that in business um, or in the working environment. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that's the best thing I can say, that they molded me into who I am. And also maybe not to rush sometimes in making, in, in, in judging situations. So rather um, taking a step back and Yeah, observing. yeah. Even from simple examples, you know, I think I was always impatient and if I wrote an email, Mm -hmm. uh, I would rush into sending it. Where now I take a step back and I read it again a couple of times, 
I change the language, I make it more precise, because you always find mistakes. Um, and so now I'm, I'm, I'm a believer of don't rush it. Mm. Process what it is that you're trying to achieve and do it so that it has an, an impact. And from implementing this type of behavior, you've seen yeah. positive change. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Consequent uh, all over the line. Well, I mean, there's never, it's about the response you're going to get from the other person. Sure. But from my part, I always feel that whether it was a job interview I went into or a meeting or a presentation or whatever, I always wanted to come out of it and think there's nothing more I could have done. Because if I came out and thought, oh, I forgot to say this, oh, I didn't do that, then I would feel partially responsible if it failed. But if I feel that I've done all I could have done, then you just need to also make peace with the fact that you're not everyone's cup of tea. Sure. And then if it fails, at least you can look at it objectively and yep. say, okay, now I can at least analyze the yep. reasons why. Because yep. I know that my side is bulletproof. Yeah. What were the other factors yeah. that played a yeah. role? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes you will find that you know other people can be unreasonable or have unrealistic expectations or they're being childish or not professional enough and then you just have to take it and just say right it is what it is moving on I just I will rearrange myself when dealing with them or avoid dealing with them altogether yeah, I think I think um, I think that is easily relatable not only to go, uh, talking about interpersonal relationships mm. but also in business oh yeah if you're dealing from one company to another, or as many people uh, listening might experience as well, if they're into entrepreneurship or having their yeah. own companies, there's so much interaction. So you must make sure that your processes are constructed in a way so that you're able to reflect and analyze mm. and observe if it fails, because it will fail. Yeah. More times than not, it will yeah. fail. I think that company organizations have a psychological level attached to them um, and I think I might be wrong but I get the feeling that organizational psychology is actually underestimated or is not being given as much attention as it should and I think that's why now you see for the last how many years an increase of linking neuroscience to different branches of business, whether it's marketing, economics and whatnot, because you realize more and more that unlocking the brain and seeing how it works and how people make decisions or how they react to things can be very important to you formulating strategy, strategies. And here we're talking about the micro-environment of an organization. Any. Any. Because obviously I'm going back to basic stakeholder relationships. Sure. And so your stakeholders, as you know, will come from different parts of the environment, whether it's micro, internal, or macro. So then understanding the dynamics involved of in, in terms of those relationships requires a certain level of depth in in understanding human psychology. And and trying to make full circle here, but do you think that also, the fact that underestimating uh, organizational psychology has played a part in businesses not really knowing who they are, or at least who they're 100%. dealing with uh, internally. 100%. Yeah. Mm. Because, as I said, it needs to start from you mm. and then proceed to the relationships that you build with others. Um, but it's, 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 it's a, a certain level of depth 
and not many people have, unfortunately. And it requires common sense, it requires patience, requires emotional maturity, um, and all those things come from life experiences as well, making mistakes, learning from them, and so forth. But also, going back to what I said before, being humble. And I just think that not many people are humble. So, you know... Um, so it's about whether you're a business or a person. It's yeah. about going out there, giving it your best, yeah. realizing how you could have done it differently in retrospect, yeah. being eager and open to learn and fail because yeah. it's part of what... Because yeah. you're, effectively you're building the foundation for the house yeah. you're going to live in later. I think that there is... Um, I don't know if I mentioned it in class, but there is um, um, a framework or... I don't know if you can call it a model, let's say, a Kolb's learning cycle, K-O-L-B. And what Kolb basically did was he discussed the idea of experiential learning and he broke it down into different stages. And so for a person to, to be successful, they need to reflect back on what they experienced and you know and, and when I say what they experienced is more about the strategy that he or she created to deal with that experience and then look at any flaws or strengths in that strategy and redefine it if there are far too many weaknesses to make it successful and I think it's also useful to look back at why you were successful because it reinforces more and more in your head you know, what you've done right. And then it becomes part of you. It becomes, you know, part of your heart drive. And it's like, like uh, training a muscle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Iteration, yeah. Iteration, 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 yeah. repetition. Yeah. Repetition makes success, I suppose. Um, but then, at some point though, a, a successful strategy could also become unsuccessful if you haven't change it based on changes that are happening around you. So you need agility. Well, yeah, you have to be versatile and agile, 100%. Be able to change at any point in time, successfully. Successfully. Successfully, yeah. All very interesting. Yes, um. I, I love psychology <laughs> firstly, and, and to a certain degree, I am sad I never actually studied it at university. But it's one of those things that you cannot progress in if you haven't done a first degree in psychology. And that's why I chose the area for my PhD, because it was about organizational psychology. So, yeah. yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah. Giorgio, I think we've run out of time. Yes. But it has been a very, very big pleasure of me to have you here with us today. It's been uh, a pleasure having a chat, and I think that um, it's interesting because you do have a certain level of depth in your thinking process that enables a conversation to flow nicely. Well, I appreciate that. And I hope uh, all you listeners have also taken something away from here. Thank the energy you. in the room, I hope we transfer some of it to you. I hope so too. Thank you for tuning in.